Let's turn to Matthew 15. Matthew 15. I'm going to begin by reading our text this morning, beginning at verse 29. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a small and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men. Besides women and children, and after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Now, if you're like me, which I know we all are very similar to each other in ways and different ways, but similar maybe as Bible students, uh, you would read a text like this and say, why the repetition? What's going on here? Um, we know Jesus healed people as they came to him. And so why is Matthew bringing this account up in particular? What, what does it matter to us? And then you have Jesus feeding more people miraculously with the feeding of 4,000. He had already fed the 5,000. So why did he do it again? And, and why is this here? I've kind of left this unsolved for a lot of years. I would just read it and go, okay, you know, similar, same, same. But what's the point? Is Matthew being sloppy here? Uh, liberals would say, well, he's just bringing up the same miracle that had happened before the 5,000. 4,000, 5,000 doesn't matter. It's just coming from a different vantage point. There's a lot of scholars, liberal scholars that say that. This is a doubling event from a different vantage point. But Matthew, the tax collector, the accountant by trade, was not being sloppy. He was detailed. He was precise. He was putting this in here for us to pay attention to. This many years later, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is here for us to learn from. To do otherwise is to weaken Scripture's authority. Even the disciples are confused at a certain moment. If you look at verse 33, with this happening again, they're not exactly knowing what to do. And in view of the feeding of the 5,000 that had just happened in the springtime, and now we're at late summer, early fall, it's kind of confusing to see their confusion. Look at verse 33. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? 
What a verse like that. That's why the liberals say, well, this can't be a repeat event because they wouldn't do something like this. But I think this underestimates the fogginess of a sinful brain (laughs) that we all share in where God has been faithful through so many ways and so many detailed events in our lives and bringing us to himself. And then we doubt him that he could do something like that again. What's the reason for these miracle events being repeated? More healing, more feeding. Is it mere redundancy? I think not. And I want to answer the question in, up front in a way that I think will answer why this is here and why this is put in this way by doing a simple T-bar exercise it's where you lay down a list, one list next to another list and do a comparative analysis. And by looking at how this certainly is a second event, these are, these are other events from the events that have happened before, By doing that and showing you the differences between the two and the similarities, it clarifies what's going on here. Let me just do that quickly for us. Here's the differences that make the point that Jesus is making by repeating this miracle. First of all, Jesus and and his disciples are in two entirely different regions when he fed the 5,000 and now he's feeding the 4,000. The first event was on the northeastern shore of Galilee. You can see it in your mind's eye on the Bible map, feeding the Jews. He's in the northeast side feeding the Jews. The second event is miles southeast of the Sea of Galilee in the region known as Decapolis. We find that from Mark's gospel account, cross-referencing that. The first feeds 5,000 plus women and children. The second, 4,000 plus women and children. The first feeding is the masses, and it's all done in one day. The second is a feeding of the Gentiles at the end of three days. The first starts with five loaves and two fish. The second, seven loaves and a few fish. First, Jesus seated them in groups of hundreds, fifties, to symbolize how Yahweh of the Old Testament had fed the um, 12 tribes of Israel as they were wandering in the wilderness, those groups, men in the wilderness. The second is the Gentiles, and they're just seated in a group. That's kind of how we roll as Gentiles, right? We just seen in a group. The first sat on grass because it's springtime, and that's when grass grows in the desert. The second is on ground, which is the dirt, which means it was after the grass had died off through summer. The first, Jesus said one blessing. Now, I do believe in saying the blessing before we eat. Okay. Um, the first said one blessing. The second, Jesus gave thanks for the loaves. And then he blessed the fish, so he said the blessing twice. The first accounts for 12 containers or boxes that are taken up of the scraps after the feeding of the 5,000. And the second is seven baskets. These are large baskets. Um, Like Paul, the apostle, was lowered um, down at Damascus through the hole in the wall. It was a large, they were seven large baskets. Matthew and Mark use uh, a word for wicker baskets for this account So I think you get the point. Uh, These being two events is, if you believe in Scripture, it's indisputable. It's irrefutable. I mean, you you get it. And even Matthew and Mark, um, their accounts in chapter 16 here in Matthew and in Mark's account, um, Jesus is going to unpack the two events and make his own comparison and make his point about being the true bread of life. So these are not the same by a long shot. But... 
The point that Matthew is making here is not how different the feeding of the 4,000 is from the feeding of the 5,000 or how different miracles for the Jews were that are now being done for this Gentile reason. His point is to say that these things are very similar, not that they're very different. He doesn't want to confuse the two, but he does want to point out how similar God's grace is to the Jew and then to the Gentile. It's sameness. That would be the word, sameness. There is, there is a love and compassion of Christ for the whole world. That's the big point. That's the big idea. Yes, Jesus had a priority mission to the Jews. He had designated the 12 and commissioned them to go to the Jews first, to the people of Israel, to the lost sheep, to go and preach the gospel to them around the Sea of Galilee. But now Jesus is shifting into some Gentile regions and he is doing it with equity, with benevolence and with same grace mentality. There is what I would say no partiality with Christ and with the gospel. We're so thankful for that. It shows no partiality to the Jew, between the Jew and the Gentile. His heart is for all the people groups of the world. You can do a cross um, study on this in James 2, 1 through 5, where we're not supposed to show partiality for the rich and the poor as we gather in collective worship. That's James's point, and that's the heart of God. And we saw that earlier with the heart of Christ as he went up to Tyre and Sidon, that sort of north Northwest from Galilee on the, on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, those were pagan areas, pagan regions that are born out of the soil of, of Canaan because this is a Canaanite woman. So you have sort of this lower paganism region where, where this woman is selected by Christ to be blessed. She approaches Christ. She dignifies him as the son of David. She recognizes his credentials as Messiah and is willing to humble herself and sublimate herself to a posture of taking the crumbs that will fall off the table as a doggy. I'm willing to be like a pet or an animal in this moment if I can just receive the grace of Christ on behalf of my daughter. She's a mom and a Canaanite mom who has a demonized daughter and Jesus um, affirms her faith saying, great is your faith, verse 28, and the daughter is healed instantly. This is a Gentile. This is a picture of God in Christ giving wider grace, moving away from the Judean area, going to Tyre and Sidon, Syrophoenician area. And then we see this is going to be widened in his ministry to some Gentile people, upwards of 15 or 20,000 people gathered. It's a ministry to one Gentile and the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman, that now is extended to more Gentiles, and it is the same grace. And I think it's easy for us to go, you know, is God's wider grace and mercy for me? And it's easy to start to question whether it is or not. Do you believe you are beyond the reach of God's grace? That you're too far gone? Or are you too proud to admit that you are in need of God's grace? Especially if you are an unbeliever. Pride will keep you from coming to Christ because you will believe yourself to be disqualified from grace. Pride is what keeps you from Jesus and what will send you to hell. We all know from verse 19 that 
from the heart. You see this in chapter 15. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Guess what? It's all of us. It's me, it's you, it's all of us. It's all in our hearts that keeps us locked in to a mindset where we believe that we are not in common sin territory, that we have not inherited the same sins. If you don't think that you're in common with each other, that you're beyond God's reach, it's terrifying. The big sin that, that will keep you from heaven is where you harden up and you become indifferent to Christ, dragged to church, sitting there wondering why you're here, showing up just out of religious duty or some sort of family obligation. That's the heart-hardening sin of indifference where you go, I don't care. But guess what? God brought you here. He cares about you. He wants you to look into the mirror of verse 19 and say, yes, that's exactly who I am. And it doesn't stop there. I'm also going to become the Canaanite woman who's humbling myself to receive God's impartial grace. Impartiality means that Christ is even-handed to all. The offer is to the world to be saved. An even-handed nature. Now, if you're taking notes, let's unpack these two miracle accounts and show you the point of each. It's two ways Jesus was impartial to the Gentiles. Two ways Jesus was impartial or even-handed to the Gentiles. Where do I get the Gentiles in this context from? First of all, he's impartial in compassion. And I'm going to show you where he was that will make sense of what I'm saying. Verses 29 to 31. He's impartial in his compassion. We have to look at the timing and proximity of where Jesus is to understand that he's reaching the Gentiles at this point. He is a you know, 32, 33-year-old man because he had lived his whole life up to the beginning of the last three years of his life where the three years that were kind of the apex of him coming here are his years of ministry. He, you know, again, growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and favor with man. He learned obedience, full humanity, but fully God at the same time. But then there was this designated time where he launched into ministry and mission, healing the sick, preaching the gospel, preaching the kingdom, bringing the kingdom And for two years, he was doing that. This last year, we've been learning about Jesus' ministry around the Sea of Galilee, where that's his um, kind of mission field area. But in his final year, his third year, he begins to aim south again. He's going to come down from Galilee and move in in his final months into Jerusalem to go to do the full act of ultimate obedience, dying at Calvary and rising on the third day on Sunday. How did he get there? Well, he's commissioned the 12. He's put them to service around Galilee. And he's, he, he then went up to Tyre and Sidon with his disciples. And he's beginning what I would call a six-month walking tour with them. You say, what is he doing now? Well, he's moved out of the Galilean area and he's moving up to Tyre and Sidon. And then he's going to take a tour with them across the top of the Sea of Galilee in the Syrophoenician range and go down to a place called Decapolis, which is all the way down 40 miles south of the Sea of Galilee. This is a 160 mile trek with these disciples. Why is he doing that? 
It's almost like an elongated trip. He's going north to go south. I'll tell you why. He wants extended time with them. He wants private ministry with them to perform miracles, to teach them kingdom living, to teach them how to carry on the mission once he's gone. That's what Jesus is doing. He's discipling them. You say, well, what is he saying to them? Well, John's gospel gives us a hint in how to think about this. John 21, 25, the final verse of the gospel of John says this. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that it would be written. There's a lot that we don't know that Jesus did and Jesus said, and he's doing it with these, his 12 disciples. Imagine that. Imagine Judas Iscariot being an insurrectionist in the face of that kind of discipleship. Can you imagine a six-month walking tour, if I have this right? And he's going to Gentile regions at this point to show that his heart is for the whole world. And he's breaking through the Jewish mind. He's trying to open their minds up to see that God wants Gentile believers to also come into the kingdom. Mark 7.31 said... He returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon, that's that Mediterranean um, coastal town, and to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, which means he went all the way around down to this bottom area of Decapolis. It's left to our imaginations what Jesus was saying to them, but we know where he was. At this point, and this is where it picks up in our text here in verse 29, he's in Decapolis. That's what Mark's gospel says by cross-reference. Decapolis, deca means 10, like decalogue, 10 commandments. Deca is 10 and polis is cities. And so you have the 10 cities. The 10 cities are um, city-states within boundaries, and they were under the Tetrarchs, which were the two, two of the four sons, um, Philip and Antipas. Philip and Antipas, they kind of covered those areas. Jesus was navigating through enemy territory under Philip and Antipas. They were sons under Herod the Great. Ruins found in the, the regions of the Decapolis are, will show there were amphitheaters, forums, there were statues, monuments there. This was a colony of Rome. It was colonized Rome. I call it a little Rome there. It was all land that had been taken over by Pompey's invasion in 64 BC. And so it was established there to preserve Greek culture, Greco-Roman culture. It was a stronghold for Rome. It was um, ranging along the southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, stretching down to the bank of Jordan. It was Hellenized territory. So if you have in the Canaanite woman scene up in Tyre and Sidon kind of a, a Canaanite um, lower paganism that had come with Baal worship and Ashereth worship, um, and you have Jesus reaching those people. Now you have a more sophisticated paganism down in the Decapolis, where people would still worship the gods and monuments of Zeus, Astard, Athene, Artemis, Hercules, Dionysus, and Demeter. This is the paganism that Jesus engaged. And verse 30 says, great crowds came to him. Great crowds came to him. Jesus was there, verse 29, beside the Sea of Galilee. 
went up to a mountain, he sat down, he sort of took his throne seat on the mountain, and the masses swarmed to Jesus. Why? Why are they coming to Jesus, this Hellenized, paganized town? Do they see Jesus as just another God to add to their idols of their own pantheon? Well, Jesus had had ministry there before. Matthew 4, 24 through 25 says that Jesus had performed ministry, had miracle ministry, teaching ministry there. And Matthew 8, 28 to 34 tells us that he did something that sowed a seed for what we find in our passage. And that was he led two demoniacs to Christ. Remember, one in particular had a legion of demons in him. It's a primary Miracle that set influence ablaze for Jesus in that area. He had crossed the Sea of Galilee. He had calmed the storm. And then on the other side, he was approached by demoniacs that came out of the cave. And this is a man with a legion of demons. The most crazy person in the known world is coming to Christ. All the demons are cast out of him. He's clothed in his right mind and his entire life is reset. That's gospel work. It's a picture of the display of the gospel, and that was in the Decapolis. Mark 5, 18, 20 says this, and as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said to him, something that Jesus didn't always say to people that were healed, he said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This was the saved, transformed, former demoniac, crazy person who became an evangelist and evangelized the Decapolis, and thousands were pouring up to Jesus with their sick and infirmed for help. If this man could be helped then this man who has returned can help my friend as well. Jesus could have been fatigued. He had just walked 160 miles. He could have used that as an excuse to do nothing, a fatigue moment to sit down, but he was sitting down to minister. I don't think he was sitting to teach at this point. Often he sat to teach as the rabbi, but verse 30 said, great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. People were carrying their sick to Jesus. It's not easy, as you know, to transport people who are sick, who are lame, who can't walk, who can't see, who can't hear, who perhaps have severed limbs. Jesus is healing all of them. They're being brought and literally plopped down at his feet, and as they are laid before him, he's healing them, he's making them whole. The point of this is that in this Romanized, Hellenized, pagan environment, Jesus is making everybody whole in the same way that he had done in Peter's house to the Jews. All night healing ceremony and in times where he's giving grace there to the Jews, he's repeating this, replicating this exactly like he did there for them. He's doing this now for the Gentiles. Every variety of hopelessness being answered with hope. Compassion was not selective. It was not partial. And verse 31 says, the crowd wondered at this. They marveled at this. 
They could not believe it. You say, well, didn't they bring their infirm to Jesus? Now, why are they in shock? I can't believe it. I've brought you here uh, to brought my son here or child here or whomever to be healed. And Jesus heals them. And then they can't believe it. It's amazing. But isn't that how the heart works? We're all stunned when God actually answers our prayer in a way that we might even have been praying for it to be answered. It's amazing grace. I can't believe it. I like the descriptors of verse 31. The, the, uh, look at this. They saw the mute speaking. It's amazing. The cripple, crippled healthy. They're walking around. The lame walking. The blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Please catch that. Highlight that in your own hearts. They're not adding Jesus to their marbleized pantheon in their own heart of God, saying uh, God is an additional God or godlet to someone I worship. No, they are designating in their heart and mind that Jesus is from Israel. This is the God of Israel. This is the God that delivered the um, wandering children of Israel through the wilderness. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God, um, Jesus, who is, who is from the line of David as the Canaanite woman had declared it to be so. They are defecting to Christ This is the language of defection. I'm leaving this paganism to go to Jesus Christ. I mean, this is is what we do as Christians. We, We go into the mind of Judaism. We're going to where Jesus comes from. We're tying the whole Bible together, Old Testament, New Testament, to say this is our Christ and he is our Messiah. We're the outsiders. We're the Gentiles. We're the nations that get to enter into God's greater program that began with the Jews. That's what they're doing. It's impartiality that draws them. The first verse I ever learned was John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. How many people was that your first verse? Some of us. God's love is for the whole world. Just takes faith to get in. Not works, faith. He's impartial in his compassion, but verses 32 to to 29. I'm sorry, 32 to 39. Impartial with provision. It says, Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. The compassion of verse of point one is pouring into the provision of point two. He says, I have compassion. It's the word splognos, it's, it's repeated of Christ more than any other attribute of Christ in terms of something that he's described as being. He is compassionate. Our Savior is compassionate. He's described as being loving. He's described as being sad. He's described as weeping. He's described as powerful. He's described as a king. He's described as a servant. He's described in so many ways throughout the Gospels. But the number one descriptor of Jesus is he is compassionate. What's unique to this Description of Christ is that he is saying it in first person. And this is the only place he says it of himself. I have compassion. He's looking at these Gentiles and going, I am just heartbroken for them. I love them. I feel this deep um, sort of sense of gravity for them in my own heart. He loves these people. This is Jesus loving the world out of his own heart. 
question is, do you believe God loves you and Jesus loves you in this way? With depth, he's caring for their own hunger needs. He's been meeting the needs of their infirmed and sick. He's been healing people, raising people up, restoring people. And now Jesus is looking at the crowd in general, which would have been 4,000 men, which means 4,000 heads of household, which means 4,000 families with women and children there, which means it's 12 to 15,000 people. And he's looking at them and he's going, they've been with me for three days, fixated on me, worshiping me, giving glory to me. And I've been helping them. And I'm worried about them now today that if they leave and go away, they're going to fall over dizzy because they're woozy with hunger. It can only last a couple days without food. And they're starving, and so they need food. They're out in the desert, and they've just been focused on Christ and this heaven-like experience, but they still need to eat. It's kind of like a nurse um, in my situations. Uh, you know, I've been in hospital rooms and things with sick kids, and I'm sure you've been in bedside situations where you're so concerned about the person in the bed that you forget for your own needs to be met, Right? And the nurse starts taking care of you, not the patient. Have you had a shower? Have you eaten any food? That's what Jesus is doing here. He's taking care of the people that were trying to take care of their loved ones. He felt compassion for them. Jesus loves those who love him. And those who love Jesus, Jesus loves. Don't ever doubt Jesus' love. Don't let the own sadness of your own sin cause you to harden up to a position of indifference to Jesus' love. He loves you. He loves you and he cares for you in this way. Jesus is teaching the Jewish apostles to love Gentiles. People who were under Antipas. People who were under Philip. People who were political enemies. Love those people. Love those people. With compassion, he's giving them the same impartial grace that he gave to the Jews. Well, how did the disciples respond? Verse 33, and the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? This is unthinkable. How could we do this? I can't imagine how this provision will take place. How can this mass of humanity be provided for? Well, what were the apostles thinking? Had they forgotten the miracle that had just been done in spring and now it's late summer, early fall? Had they become blind to Jesus' power, his ability to do what he's been displaying where he's been healing people on the spot? Remember, they actually participated in the miracle of passing out the food and it just kept being passed out miraculously for the 5,000, which was 20,000 people. So, how were the apostles confused? Maybe they were prompting Jesus to perform the same miracle for them by saying, you give them something to eat. And again, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place? Maybe ye need to get, not we need to get the bread. I don't know. We're not exactly clear on what was going on in the minds of the apostles. You could do this, not us, maybe was their mindset. But maybe mixed in the soup of unbelief in this moment is a, a bit of a bigotry 
in the hearts of the apostles, where they need a wall to fall down between their compassion for their own people versus their compassion for these Decapolites, these people, this new group that they're uncomfortable with. Not sure. Remember the miracle to the 5,000 of the feeding of bread that was showing Jesus to be Yahweh, showing him to be the bread of life, was um, directed to um, people sitting down in terms of their tribal groups and, and directed in a way that was reflecting back to the miracle that had been given 1,400 years ago to the wandering children in the wilderness. So their lag of motivation might have been a combination of a mindset, we can't do this. Wait, you did this once before, but would you do this again? And wait, would you do the same thing for the Gentiles that you had done for your people, the lost people of Israel? I mean, what, what, what are we, what's going on here? Jesus just takes the conversation over. And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. Now, Jesus know the answer before he asked the question, we don't know. Sometimes I think he did in his omniscience, and sometimes I think there's this, you know, this humility of mind where he's just following the Father's will and letting things happen observably as they're happening. Not always sure exactly how Jesus is operating, and in this case, maybe once he heard, oh, there's seven loaves, Jesus is going perfect because this is the number of completion. This is a significant number. This is a significant number. And I'm not trying to get into numerology or go to allegorical with Scripture, but Jesus himself in chapter 16 will talk about the significance of seven baskets versus 12 baskets. 12 baskets, 12 containers. Um, The word coffin is used um, in the Greek language for that 12 containers that were collected after the 5,000, which was 20,000, but the 5,000 were fed with the Jews. There were 12 containers. It represents the 12 tribes of Israel. Here we have seven baskets. They're the big baskets that Paul was able to get into one of them, um, you know, later on. But these giant baskets, and seven is the number of completion, just like you have the seven days of creation. It's a significant sort of universal number to make clear a point that Jesus is making, and that is this. Jesus is sufficient as Savior for the whole world. It's like you have seven baskets full to represent his full satisfying sufficiency to save the whole world. He's a rescuer for the 12 tribes of Israel, and which is a symbol of Israel, and he's a rescuer for the whole world. You have to see things with the spiritual understanding to understand that Jesus is also the bread of life for everyone. It's the same miracle, but it stands out as different because now it's a miracle to the Gentiles. Remember Jesus, he rebuked the crowds for not seeing the significance when Jesus fed the 5,000. John 6, 26 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're looking for more food, but see the reason behind the miracle. And that's the same idea here. There's seven loaves that are given to see that Jesus is the sufficient, perfect bread of life, savior to the Gentiles. It's a missions text.
They're going to be going soon back to a place called Magadan in chapter 16 where they're going to be confronted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees again. Jesus is doing this display of outreach to the Decapolis area to reach the whole world and they go right back into the religious center one more time defending the difference between coming to Christ by grace or by works. We come to Christ by grace. You have a choice. Do you want to be rolling the dice with religion to save you? Or do you want to know that you have heaven because you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you want to be someone who is just part of some sort of moral code? Where you're salving your conscience by you know, praying enough or doing enough or giving enough, serving enough? Or believing you're never enough and just lost in that? Or do you want to know Jesus by grace alone? That's the dividing line. That's always the point that Jesus is making. Grace is the provision for a Jew or a Gentile. And that's the only provision for heaven. Well, the text says in verse... 36, he took seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. Verse 35, he directed them to the ground, to the crowd to sit down on the ground, the hard dirt. But then he's having the disciples participate in this miracle again. He wants them to get over the hump and see this for themselves. It says, they all ate, verse 37, and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And then the detail here, for those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. So this happened. Then he sent the crowds away. And sending the crowds away, he got into a boat and went to the region of Magadan. Now, where is Magadan? We don't know. Um, Charles Spurgeon said, you know, was Mary Magdalene there? You know, is this a sort of synonymous title where she would have been, I don't know. One thing that's significant here is what Alfred Edersheim said in The Life and Times of Jesus. He said that in the three successive stages of Jesus' ministry, Jesus ended each stage by setting a meal before his people. First, there was the feeding of the 5,000 that came at the end of his ministry in Galilee, for Jesus was never to teach and preach in Galilee again. Second, there was the feeding of the 4,000 that came at the end of his brief ministry to the Gentiles uh, beyond the bounds of Palestine, first in the districts of Tyre and Sidon, and then at Decapolis. Then there's a third meal that served. Do you know what that is? The third and last was the Last Supper in Jerusalem when Jesus came to the final stage of the days of his flesh. What's the point? Jesus offers physical provision. He does care about your physical needs. But that's all to just set the table for you to think about your spiritual needs. Think of how people come to an emergency room. If you've ever been in an emergency room or around a hospital, you know people are desperate. There's, there's scenes of pockets of sadness. People are looking for a doctor to help them, to guide them, to give them comfort. And I dignify all of that. I understand pain and suffering is horrible in this life, and we're looking for relief. 
Every third commercial, though, if you're watching like, you know, World Cup soccer or football or whatever, every third commercial is a health commercial. People are hyper-concerned for their health. Hyper-focused there for this life. Everything is in a, in a trajectory of terminating in this life, not looking beyond. What if you could be healed by the great physician, though, guaranteed? Guaranteed. These people are pictured as going to Christ because he was guaranteed as a doctor to heal their health malady. But what Christ is positioned to do for you today is a guaranteed healing of a heart that is condemned in sin. He's guaranteed to convert you if you come to him, and he's guaranteed to grow you if you will rely on him. He is your physician, guaranteed to save you, guaranteed to grow you. He'll heal you in this life or the next one, but the guarantee is here today for you, for you to come to him. And if you come to him, he'll receive you impartially. Don't miss that point. He will receive you. All who come to him will no wise be cast out. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus offers compassion for you? Do you believe this? Do you believe Jesus can look at all of your idols in your heart with x-ray vision? Look inside your heart at all the sins that you have committed, have been committing, and he will heal you from those things. He will forgive you of those things. This account tells us that he does that, and he will do that for you.